What's up and welcome back to the Promethean Perspective. I'm your host, Emily Ryback, and I am so glad that you are joining me for another episode today. I hope that you are doing well and God is continuing to bless your life abundantly. Before we hop into today's show, I just wanted to start off by telling a little bit of what a priest friend of mine calls a glory story. Essentially, it's just something from this past week where I really saw God work through and uh, got, I really got to see a lot of God's fruit and beauty in it. So let's, before we start today's episode, let's let's uh, hop into that real fast. Here we go. So my glory story for this week has got to be my mom. My mom is a super awesome individual. I'm sure everybody has a person like that in their life where they definitely can just look up to them and really appreciate who they are as an individual created in the image of God. So my glory story this week is actually my mom. Just her continuous dedication to everything we do and um, her heart is just very lovely and it's a joy to be around. And in despite, in despite um, everything that's been going on with all the stressful situations and everything, she's just been real really um, persistent and and really awesome and she's been uh, definitely a joy to be around a little light in this world despite all the present darkness so yeah shout out to you my mom (laughs) shout out to you my mom (laughs) I'm praying for you I'm really thankful for you and um, yeah you're my glory story that feels great I just put on a really warm sweater that um, I've had for some time now, and if you all don't know, it has been pouring down rain. Um, I, I usually don't exaggerate about the weather, because usually when people talk about the weather, they sound like grandma and grandpas, but it's been pouring like this entire week, 24-7, rain has been falling from the sky. Fortunately, nothing's like flooded dramatically around here which is really good but um taking care of farm chores in this kind of weather definitely soaks you to the bone as my grandfather used to say so uh yeah taking care of the animals and doing all the farm chores has definitely definitely gotten me loving my uh, nice warm sweaters and uh very grateful that I held on to them in the middle of May because it's kind of cold and really wet and rainy and so I'm just enjoying the life that I'm living right now I have to say um ah, life is life is so very good I um yeah life's just life's great and uh, sometimes it's really hard to have that perspective but uh, I think it's also really easy uh when you when you really catch sight of what's truly important um we've been because we've been inside like all the time now besides like going out to do farm tours and stuff uh, because we've been side, like, we've been cooking and, like, doing a lot of, like, fun things because we're all kind of, like, a little preoccupied with other things. Like, I've been doing a lot of embroidery. And, like, Grace, she started painting, uh, my sister, she started painting, like, an upstairs section of our loft. And then my brother was, like, learning new songs on the guitar. And I've, I love to bake, so I've been baking a lot. I think I made um, homemade cinnamon buns for my family on Sunday and then I also found two really good recipes for cookies so in case any of you guys are interested I'll just share them right here they're really simple and they turn out really great so the first recipe is this one um but you didn't know you were gonna get free recipes today yeah so here here's the first one um you need two bananas which you like mash up 
like almost like you were making banana bread. You need a half a cup of chocolate chips. If you want to keep it like really um, healthy, dairy free, you just use dairy free, um, gluten free chocolate chips. And then use a half a cup of those, and or sorry, fourth a cup of those. And then you use a half a cup of oats. And all you do is just like mix it all together, make balls, put it in the oven, uh, 350 for eight minutes. And uh, you got yourself some non-flour, non-dairy cookies. It's only three ingredients. Pretty simple. It makes about 10. Second ingredient for cookies is if you are a peanut butter peanut butter lover like myself, um, hinted, I love peanut butter. And uh, my favorite thing to eat is frozen peanut butter sandwiches. So if you ever want to make me some frozen peanut butter sandwiches and, and mail them to me, we can arrange that. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, I love frozen peanut butter. I just love peanut butter in general. And so this recipe, if you're a peanut butter lover like myself, this recipe is for you. So it calls for a cup of peanut butter, half a cup of sugar, and an egg. And you just mix it all up and do the same, 350 for 8 minutes. And you got yourself 10 peanut butter cookies that have no flour, no dairy. You're good to go. So those two little uh, secret recipes, I hope you enjoy them if you're stuck inside during quarantine or... Um, if you're not in quarantine anymore and you're just stuck inside because it's pouring down rain, I hope you enjoy those those uh, recipes. But yeah, let's uh let's stop talking about cookies and <laughs> jump into today's episode. Here we go. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. I love me some water. I've just been uh, sipping on some water while I'm doing this and water is so good. <laughs> like I just got to say Mm, I'm so grateful for water this morning. It's delicious. And even though it's pouring down from the sky, I'm still really enjoying the water. So um, I got some feedback on some possible topics that we could do for um, some episodes here on the Promethean Perspective. And one of them was like kind of do a crash course of the New Testament. For those of you that don't know, um, I am Catholic. And so I do have an interest in the ology and all of that amazingness that comes with being Catholic. And so um, in some of the classes that I've taken, I've learned and learned a great deal about um, scripture and the whole realm of the ology. And so I just thought it would be fun to actually expand on one of the topics you guys wanted to hear so that um, I was providing content that you guys actually liked. So I decided that we were going to start a little series on the survey of the New Testament and I just thought it would be fun to basically just go through and then, like, uh, read y'all's feedback, address certain questions that you guys have concerning it and stuff like that. So, yeah, we're just basically going to start. So, um, I wanted to start off saying that the New Testament basically is, as a whole, it just gives the historical account of the birth, the ministry, the death, and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension. Um, which I, I guess you could tie in with the um, ministry portion of Jesus and or, and or resurrection. Um, and, and these are all fundamental documents which give us the historical witness to salvific life that Jesus lived. And um, basically the Gospels um, that are within the New Testament, they take two forms. So um, the synoptics, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they take the same form which provides basically the historical outline of the events in Jesus' life. And then the fourth one, the Gospel of John, it gives us the history, um, but also has a very profound theological understanding of the events in that history, in, in that time period in history. Um, so basically, I just thought our first few episodes, we would analyze the synoptics in order to 
um, understand the firm grounding and the actual events that make up the life and mystery of the of our Lord incarnate. And then I thought it would be fun to examine the Gospels of John to see the theological framework that he provides to help us understand these events. Um, so I'm just going to grab a few sips of water here and we, we are going to jump in. Let's uh, go. Mm. Okay, I'm really loving this water today. All right preparations and the beginning of ministry of Christ. So this was one of the topics that you guys really wanted to know about uh, regarding the New Testament. All right, so let's, let's, let's dive into this. So we see that the Old Testament witness uh, t- was a witness to the fundamental covenant that God made with Abraham. And he made this covenant with Abraham to bring about the salvation of the world. But this covenant also, um, the Old Testament also gave witness to the um, great apostasy of God's people um, with all their, uh, even their eventual exile into Babylon. Now, within this context, God raised up prophets um, who actually spoke of messianic hope. And, and these prophets, the, what they spoke about, this Messiah that these prophets spoke about, um, he was going to one day arise and bring about fundamental change in the world and would bring an Eden-like existence into being. Um, but this message also contained the prophecy of the suffering servant, which is elaborated upon in Isaiah 53, who essentially would suffer for sins, not essentially, would absolutely suffer for sins, and by whose wounds we would be healed. Um, so the Old Testament, we look towards the end of it, and it ends on a note of expectation, of anticipation, with a promise of a new, custom, uh, of a new co- covenant, and in which the hearts of the people would be turned to God, and one in which the people of God would become actually obedient to him from their hearts. So this is the expectation that the Old Testament ends on. And so when we open the New Testament, and we, it begins with this gene, genealogical, genealogical, I can never say that word. I guess, okay, genealogical. All right, there we go. We got it. Uh, begins with the genealogical table that shows that the Messiah, who's Jesus, is directly descended from Abraham and King David. So the early parts of the gospel, they show that exact preparation that God made for the coming of his son into the world. Because first there's the birth of John the Baptist who announces the arrival of the Messiah and his successor who baptized with water and the spirit. And and then we see Luke who gives us specific details of the Annunciation and the good news to Mary in the beginning of the incarnation how she accepts her vocation to be the mother of the Lord. And then further along, we see the birth is surrounded by numerous miracles and has Christ um, lives, has a little child. Um, with, this bapt- with his baptism, uh, Jesus begins his ministry by announcing publicly that Isaiah's prophecy um, about the coming kingdom is now being fulfilled further hearing. And so there's a lot of key importance, um, I think, to understand uh, the covenants, the legacies, um, in the Old Testament before like fully understanding the New Testament. So that is a very important observation to keep in mind for sure. Um, that they are both, uh, they're both complementary to each other. They're both needed, the Old and New Testament, because one would not make sense without the other, and one would be really, um, I guess you could say it would be a lot a lot more empty, for lack of better words. Like, it wouldn't have the same impact, the same merit, the same meaning. All right, so let's dive into one of the synoptic gospels. Uh, let's let's take a closer look at Luke. So Luke, who was one of the apostles, uh, he was a physician, and he had basically a scientifically 
a more scientifically inclined way of looking at things, uh, which basically if you read his Gospels, you can totally see that he's a lot more noted in his details, and, and that had to do with his um, his role, his career, I guess you could say, has a physician. So in the Gospel, he is the one that pays very careful attention, not only to like the birth of Christ, but also the birth of the forerunner, John the Baptist. Um, and so it's important to examine uh, John the Baptist's conception and, and what that means in a larger context of the Gospel. So we're going to take a look here at Luke 1, 1 uh, verse 1 to 25, and then verses 57 to 80. Um, Luke 1 Verse 17 says, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient into the insight of the righteous. So uh, Luke basically approaches this whole task of writing the events of the Gospels as a historian. And he begins this investigation very tediously, very carefully. And he sets out upon this task in a very orderly fashion, um, which like in Luke 1, verses 1 to 4, the beginning is the point where the miraculous birth, the beginning is the point with the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. Um, And his parents, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, you see in in chapter 1, verse 6, that they are righteous people. And like many couples in the Old Testament, the wife is barren, as it elaborates upon in uh, chapter 1, verse 7. And and Zacharias is also the priest of a clan of um, Abaha, Abijah. I don't know how to even pronounce that. It's A-B-I-J-A-H. I think it's Abaha um, or Abijah. Abaha? I, Abaha. I don't actually know. Hit me up if you know what, what, what Abaha means I, I, or how to pronounce it. I think it's Abaha. I'm going to go with that, but I don't actually know. I remember reading it, and I was like, I need to look that word up, and now I'm really regretting that I didn't. All right, moving on. Um, and his wife, Elizabeth, who's from the Aaronite line. Um, so Zacharias is about to enter the temple and he, to carry out his appointed priestly um, turn to, to burn the incense. Uh, and, and while he's in the temple, an angel appears to him and Zacharias becomes frightened. But in the angel's message is that Elizabeth will have a son who will be called John. Um, but this was not going to be just a regular normal uh, kid off the street. Um, he was going to be a Nazarite who did not touch wine and, and was going to be pure and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even while in the womb. And so John the Baptist's vocation is made very clear by um, Luke's writing and in that he John the Baptist is going to turn many back to Israel in Israel to following God. And his role is to fulfill the prophecy of Malachi um, in chapter 4 and uh, be like Elijah, essentially. Um, Critical to his mission was the fact that he was going to go before the Lord. And like Abraham and Sarah, Zacharias and his wife, they're old. And so Zacharias is doubting and he asks for a sign. And Gabriel, the angel, says that um, because of this request, because of his lack of faith, that he's going to be unable to speak until the child is born. And so Zacharias leaves the temple mute. He can't speak. And so we see the story is picked up in verse 57 when Elizabeth gives birth. And on the eighth day, according to the law, uh, the parents have the child circumcised. And so the people think that the child will be named after the father, but he intervenes and writes on the tablet that the child's name is to be John, which causes like a little bit of drama we see here in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, everyone gets a little uh, stirred up. Everyone gets a little feisty like, what 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 are you saying? His name's like, why are we naming this kid John? Like, there's not a person in our family named John. There's no like, um, 
like, I guess, previous legacy of that name in our family. Like, why are we naming him John? <laughs> so Zacharias caused a little drama here. But uh, we see both the continuity of, of continuity, sorry, of with the Old Testament theme of a bare couple at the heart of salvation history, and then a break with it as well. So the child was to be called John, not after his father. So thus, a new beginning is being cultivated here. And so Zacharias' tongue is loosed, and then he begins to praise God in an utterance of uh, prophecy, showing what kind of life his child will have. And so at this point, it's clear that the time of the visitation of the Lord, the people would come and repent of their sins and return to God, and that the child, um, John the Baptist, was was meant to go before the Lord to prepare for his coming. So on a theological level, I think it's really um, important to know uh, the principle that's being enunciated here. So there are times of preparation which God's people um, need to prepare for the activity of God. So this timing is part of God's order to save. Uh, you could call it the saving order if you want to. Um, God saves the world through a series of acts in salvation history. And so the, the coming of Christ is preceded by the coming of John, who without a doubt has come to prepare the way for him. And so time is thus part of the saving order of redemption and it must be respected. So um, I think i just do a little bit of recap on that whole portion from Luke, um, that it's clear that there's numerous accounts circulating in the ancient world concerning Christ's life. And that also, there's also clear that there's going to, there were eyewitness accounts among, um, many Luke shows the scientific bent of his mind by investigating everything and then making an order of these accounts. Luke is concerned with accuracy, accuracy. (laughs) I'm messing up my words. So I'm going to get some more water and just pretend that didn't happen. All right. Both parents of John the Baptist, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they come from priestly lines. And so John thus has been seen as having a priestly role as he prepares for the coming of the Lord. And also, I think another thing to keep in mind was that barrenness was a great grief as the continuity of the family would stop. So, uh, but here, as in the Old Testament, we see that the power of God overcomes this obstacle of barrenness and, and shows that the power of salvation history lies with God. Um, in, in in fact, we see that with John the Baptist, we had the dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, John is understood to be the last person in the Old Testament who prepares for the beginning of the kingdom in Christ. And so, uh, fast forward a little bit to where Zacharias is making that daily uh, ritual of burning of the incense and everyone's at prayer. And his reaction to the angel, uh, it seems to be fear. And that seems to be a common reaction to appearing angels. And this is understandable. And the first thing that the angel says to him is, do not be afraid. And and these are the same words that he uses to address to Mary. And um, it is clear that both Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're praying for a child. And that their prayers are being answered, but the angel gets the angel tells them what the child will be named. And so, in verse one, uh, chapter one, verse fifteen, we see the vow of the Nazarite, um, which is found in back in Numbers six, uh, one, chapter six, verse one, in the Old Testament, where they separated unto the Lord in holiness, and they were not to drink wine, and they were not to shave their heads, they were not defiled uh, by going, in, or could they be defiled by going near like dead bodies? They were two other Nazarites from birth, such as Samson and Samuel, which it's talked, those are talked about in, um, Judges chapter 13, verse 7, in, uh, 1 Samuel verse 1, I think, or chapter 1, I think, um, but John was to be in this state of holiness in his life, and was to prepare, uh, 
all for the coming of Christ through the example of his life. And so the mission of John is seen as the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi, which states that Elijah will come to turn children's hearts back to the father and fathers to their children. And so John is has, is blessed with this role to turn people back to God. And so exactly like Abraham, after this supernatural experience, Zacharias wants to have a sign, like he wants to have some kind of like, verification that what he's being told by the angel is true so it is comforting that to see that like great heroes of the faith um great models in scripture um even even upon receiving this call of greatness in their lives they they show their frailty they show their human weakness and we see how god he still uses that like he still uses that to his uh, glory and it's just a beautiful thing to witness throughout the whole of scripture um the angel announces his name to Zacharias, that his name will be John, just as Gabriel states. Uh, Gabriel states that because of his unbelief, Zacharias will be mute. And and it's very interesting because here we see Zacharias is told what his son's name will be, and later on in Scripture we see Mary is told what her child's name will be. And so Zacharias returns home, and his wife's pregnant, and Elizabeth has a son, and and there's this great rejoicing. Um, and and then we see that there's no one in the family is called John, and so this is like the first. Uh, person in their family be called John and this caused a little drama there and um, at this point Zacharias's tongue is loosed and he begins to praise God so all of these miraculous elements uh, were kind of a topic of of conversation which began to wonder what the Lord had in store for this child and Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit and so he begins to reveal uh, through prophecy and, and this is what is known as the Benedictus and it's regularly used in churches morning prayers so if you guys don't know like blessed be God um, or not that one, sorry, um, what is, how's it go? Oh, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, for he's come to his people and set them free. It starts off like that. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that in, like, morning prayer or, um, uh, yeah, morning prayer for, like, liturgy of the hours, um, but we say that in the liturgy of the hours. So it is clear that the child John is bound with salvation history and the manner in which God plans to save his people is inclusive of John's life. John is to be a prophet who prepares the way of the Lord. And this not only tells us who John is, but also points to who Christ the Lord God is. Um, John eventually will go out and live in the desert and stays there until his public ministry begins. Um, but we'll get more into that uh, a little bit later. I want to jump into Mark's Gospel, which is the second of the synoptic Gospels. Um, so Mark's Gospel begins with the preaching of John the Baptist. And so it doesn't contain the material relating to birth of Christ, uh, which Luke's did. Because once again, we see that Luke provides us with a far greater detail of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus as does Matthew. Um, so the geolo genealogical matter is very critical because it makes that link between the Old and the New Testament. And this family line beginning with Abraham and, and technically Adam was being prepared for the arrival of the Messiah who had to be able to trace his ancestry because that says a lot. And so it gives us that information about the Annunciation in which Mary receives and accepts this news of her vocation to be the mother of the Lord. And so the birth has profound theological implications you know jesus is born in obscurity he's born in poverty and yet in that in that poverty and that humility he perfectly fulfills the will of the father and, and this is the beginning of the end of the cosmic battle and, and this is particularly witnessed um 
by the slaughter of the innocents, which we hear about in, in basically the nativity scene when Herod attempts to kill the new king of Israel, but, but he actually kind of really fails that mission, um, as we know, because they escaped to Egypt. And so the mission of this Christ child, however, was not just to Israel has the visit of the Magi attest to. The salvific life was to affect all. It was meant for all. And so finally we see in the ritual of purification that the complete obedience of the Holy Family and before that of John the Baptist to the law of God once, ago, once again shows this, this utter humility of God and who he chooses, how he chooses to dwell in the midst of a poor family. And through each of these incidents, we are uh, given a beautiful revelation of the true nature of Christ and the nature of his mission. Um, which is just marvelous to, to delve into. And, and the book of generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, um, uh, the son of Abraham, is all inclusive in, in the very first part of Matthew. So you read the whole genealogy, genealogy, which begins in Matthew's gospel, and it is filled with some names, a lot of names. Some you may know, some may, you may not. Um, I was actually reading it, I stole up on that last night during Lexia Divina, and I was like, man, there is a lot of names in here. I've, like, wow. I mean, it's only 14 generations, but, like, there's a lot of names in there. And some of them are, are really interesting, and some of them are a lot easier to say than others. That is for sure. Um, but David is this, this key personage in that genealogy, and because it, it was to him that the Lord promised an everlasting kingship, that covenant. And so one of his royal descendants would reign forever on the throne of Israel. And so it was the rise of this kingship and with the and the exile in Babylon that the messianic hope was going to be articulated more clearly in Israel. And so the kingship and the and the Messiah were essentially welded into one. And so now the coming of Jesus, um, this this essence of convergence, is properly realized in the fullness of his person. Uh, we move on to the the conception of Christ that Luke elaborates in um, in the in first chapter of Luke verse thirty one, um, and behold you shall receive, sorry excuse me, and behold you shall conceive in the womb and give birth to a son and you shall call him Jesus. So in this first text of Luke, it deals with the very nature of the birth of Christ in in its fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, um, a woman who is still a virgin will conceive a child who one day will sit on the throne of his father David. And so this is this is obviously a birth that is going to supersede any others. Um, whereas before God would intervene in the lives of a barren couple and enable them to bear children, here um, the woman, Mary, is visited by the Holy Spirit and she will conceive without the aid of a man. So with the openness of, of Mary, with Mary's vulnerability in the activity of the Holy Spirit, the, the child, Christ, becomes the Son of God, fully human, and fully divine. And so Mary um, is betrothed to Jesus, uh, to Joseph, and her pregnancy obviously causes a great tension in the community, in her family, because um, if you were betrothed, you could consider that like an engagement, and you don't, it's not like lawful to have children outside of marriage. And so we see that this causes a a bit of tension, which is particularly elaborated upon in Matthew's uh, gospel, where we see Joseph thinks about divorcing Mary, and 
we see that he's told in a dream of the true circumstances and he's told uh, the role that he has in the fulfillment of this um, Isaiah prophecy. And so he accepts this and he takes Mary as his wife. And Luke's account complements uh, this understanding of the meaning of Christ's birth. And so after the initial greeting, Mary is told that the child will be called the son of the Most High, and he's going to rule as David's messianic heir. And so this name gives us, at, like almost instantly, the identity of Christ, that he is the son of God. And so Mary's uh, chosen to be the ark, uh, the covenant, the tabernacle of the Savior of the world. And so this, again, just affirms the identity of the child, and the Holy Spirit overshadows her, and um, that the child that she will bear is to be born and, and be called holy and be called the Son of God. And so Mary makes her fiat, um, where she makes this act of faith where she says, Be it done unto me according to your word. And, and, and in her acceptance of this word from God, the word is then conceived in her womb and takes on human flesh. And this is uh, better known to us as the incarnation. And so the early church fathers, they we see um, Mary as the new Eve by, because of her act of obedience. She um, undoes the disobedience or, or heals or restores that disobedience of Eve. Uh, sorry, just got to get some more water here. More aqua. All right, so we see that the gospel pinpoints um, specifically in Luke, again, because he has a lot of uh, more detail. He pays specific attention to little entities that we often miss. But the gospel pinpoints the birth of Christ and when it took place. And Caesar Augustus was emperor, and uh, Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And so the first census was being taken. And so to emphasize this Davidic lineage of Christ, the gospel basically uh, sums up and states that uh, that the need of Joseph to go to Bethlehem and, uh, because he is of the house of David. And our familiarity with the text, um, we don't often realize the poverty and starkness of Christ's birth. Like we don't, we kind of take it out of context sometimes. Like Christ was born, but we don't like realize that he was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the inn and his crib you know, is like the feed box of animals in a manger. And so the irony of the situation is that he who is God and, and therefore possesses all um, has virtually nothing when he enters his own creation. And, and so this birth has is the intersection between the heavenly and the earthly realm. And, and this is particularly portrayed with the angelic visitation to the shepherds um, where the shepherds are watching their flocks and the angel appears to them proclaiming that a savior has been born in Bethlehem. And, and they, the angelic hosts proclaim the savior, um, the, the savior's birth and, and praise God with the Gloria, um, Hosanna in the highest. The shepherds, they leave their flock and they go to witness the birth and they find the baby has the angel said and they share the message. And Mary's response is to treasure these words and ponder them in their heart. And so here, uh, with everything else that's going on, we also see the profound contemplative spirit of Mary, the mother of God, which is it's insane. Not insane, but it's just like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's just, there's so much going on at once, but there's also like such a simplicity at the same time, but then there's just like also so much depth and weight and like, wow, whew, you just need, you need a chance to just sit and like take it all in because it is a lot. <laughs> so I encourage Alexio Divina for certain, certain scripture that you've heard a thousand times. You may know my heart, you know, all the situation, you know, the circumstances, but man, scripture packs a punch and sometimes it just needs to be 
unloaded is to be taken apart word by word understanding the merit and the weight of each word that's spoken and given um so has with the book of genesis uh, we see in the book of genesis uh 2 4 uh that chapter 2 verse 4 Matthew's gospel it begins with the genealogy and and these two critical figures are pointed out here uh, such as David and Abraham and the genealogy is traced forward through Joseph who is the husband of Mary and the broad outline of the history of Israel is given so the covenant with Abraham the kingship of David the exile into Babylon and the birth of Christ and and um in in ancient Israel we uh, understand that betrothal was a very serious legal matter and required a divorce to get out of. And so Mary's virginity is emphasized in the text of Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 27, and it, how is the fulfillment of what Isaiah says in, in I think it was chapter 17 of his book. Um, and the angel's message is essentially completely of grace. Mary has found that favor with God. And this is this is key because it further indicates the twofold nature of, of the child as we dealt upon in a little bit earlier so um these are all very uh important to understand and contemplate in going through them like when you do Alexa Divina on something on a story like this in scripture you really have to just take it like not even like chapter by chapter but like verse by verse to really understand uh you can't just like and you have to like uh, like appreciate the verse in the fullness of the rest of the chapter at the same time if that makes any sense um, I want to talk a little bit about what Matthew says about the wise men and um, Herod's slaughtering of the in, uh, holy innocents. So salvation was not um, to be confined to Israel only. And so in Genesis, it, it makes it very clear that from the beginning, God has a plan to bring the entirety of the world back to him. And the genealogies in the New Testament... I'm getting that word down a lot better. <laughs> um, they show that Jesus was rooted in the chosen people of the Old Testament. And that the visit of the Magi, it shows a further dimension of this salvation. Because it is for all people. And the Magi, um, let's let's talk about them for a moment. Um, the Magi, more than likely, they're probably Persian astronomers. These are just my thoughts. Um, they had to come to know what a new king of the Jews... Um, they had come to know that the a new king of the Jews had been born by an observation of his star. And they traveled to Israel to meet him. And they contacted King Herod to learn. And, and Herod's responses was to gather the chief priests and scribes so that they could find out the location of this king. Because Herod's really worried. And his concern is um, not expressed fully, like his true concern. And so... Uh, they're referred to in the prophecy of Micah, uh, which showed that the ruler shepherd would come from Bethlehem. So in slight fashion, Herod called the Magi to find out where the star had appeared, and, and he asked them to find the child and report back to him. And so they leave, and, and they go find the child. They worship him, and they give him his gifts, and um, and they are warned by an angel. Here's the angel again, good old angel Gabriel, not to return to Herod, but to go back to their own country. And so theologically speaking, the visit of the Magi shows that the saving will of God extends to all people in all nations and on a more symbiotic, um, yeah, I guess symbolic level. Yeah. Uh, the gifts indicate the nature and the mission of Christ because the gold is for kingship, the frankenship, frankincense, it shows his divinity and the mirror, which is a 
burial ointment shows the suffering and future passion of Christ. And so, and Herod finds out that he's been tricked, he's enraged, and he orders that all the children under two be killed. And so this tragedy is linked to the prophecy in Jeremiah where Rachel is heard weeping for her children. Rachel, who lived centuries before, is somehow organically connected with these slaughtered children that she weeps for. So why does such devastation surround the birth of Christ? Uh, this is a question that gets asked a lot concerning this part in Scripture. And so this gives us the glimpse of the clash between good and evil that is predicted in Genesis, where the Maya, Messiah will indeed prevail, but the battle will be fierce and costly. And so Jesus is warned in a dream to escape to Egypt. And so he flees there with Mary and the child, as many of you probably know. And Matthew makes the point that this is also the fulfillment of the prophecy of uh, Hosea, where uh, it says that out of Egypt I called my son. And so this is finally fulfilled after the death of Herod, when Joseph is told by an angel to come back to the land of Israel, uh, which we see in Matthew, where the Holy Family resides in Nazareth, which again uh, fulfills prophecy just as the covenant of Moses when the people of God were led out of Egypt here Christ um, who will initiate the new covenant comes out of Egypt as well and and from the time of Christ's birth until the beginning of his public ministry there's only one recorded event in the life of the young child and interestingly this takes place when Jesus is 12 um, the traditional time when a joy, Jewish boy takes on the responsibility of observing the Torah, the law of Moses. And so Mary and Joseph go up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, after which the couple travels homeward and unknowingly leaves Jesus behind. Could you, okay, can we just talk about, how, could you imagine losing the child, Jesus? <laughs> like, I understand the situation. I understand, like, kind of why it happened, like, the point and the message of this section in scripture. But like, you had one job, Mary. You lost the child, Jesus. <laughs> I just, I think this is funny because there's been times where I've lost a sibling or, you know, I, I've lost my parents, like not been able to, I, I was where I wasn't supposed to be and my parents couldn't find me and stuff like that. And like, it's kind of funny because there's a lot of us, we, we have, I have a lot of siblings. And so it makes a little bit sense, but it's like, you had one kid, you lost your one kid. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Anyways, I, like I said, I understand the true death and merit of this scriptural verse. I was just, yes, I, I'll back down. All right. All right. Well, this seems incomprehensible to us. Um, <laughs> In a society which valued the extended family, the whole town would be in a caravan. So this, this makes the whole situation a little bit more understandable, why it would be so hard. You know how kids are. They run off and they, they do their thing with people, okay? So they begin, Mary and Joseph, they look very anxiously for the child. And, and they eventually, they find him in the temple, speaking with the teachers of the law. And they're completely astounded at his understanding and his answers. And so Mary questions Jesus and asks him, like, did you not know that we were looking for you? And so he replies again. Uh, his his reply to her reveals the nature and the hidden his hidden mission, because he answers that he has been in his father's house. He that did you not know I had to do the will of my father? And so there's this deep identity between Jesus and the Most High, and it is also telling that neither G Joseph nor Mary fully understood what Jesus was saying. And so, you know, they don't really comprehend their twelve year old right here, but they ponder upon what he says. And so he goes back with them to Nazareth, which shows his continuance of obedience to them. And so Mary. It says that Mary treasures all these things in her heart, and Jesus continues to grow in wisdom and stature, um, which is a very, like I said earlier, a very interesting thing to dwell upon. So there's there's a few like really good questions I guess you could 
draw from what you're just talking about to kind of go further. So if you want to like do like a kind of Lexio Divina um, scriptural reflection on what we just read, I, I did actually prepare a few questions for you guys to dwell upon. So the first is like, what is the meaning of so many supernatural events surrounding in Christ's birth? And like, how does that affect my life right now with all the situations that I'm in? Um, the second one is, how do you explain the meaning of the slaughter of the innocents and um, what that means tying into Old Testament prophecies, fulfillments? Um, the third is, what is the theological meaning of Jesus' being lost and then found in the temple and uh, the important role that that played? And then lastly, um, Mary treasuring the words of God and the events that he brought about in her heart and and what does that mean and why is it important to note that and what is that what is that how does that implicate itself into your life what does that mean for you and um why why do we need why is it important that we understand that and dwell upon that um, I just wanted to uh yeah just give those few last little um key points to kind of dwell upon if you go back and reread some of the scripture we did uh, from Matthew and Luke. We basically kind of went back and forth uh, reading about their accounts of Jesus's early life um, before his public ministry um, up in, in, and also the time of John the Baptist. Um, so yeah, I believe we are going to just uh, close off today's episode with a bit of a prayer. So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the gift of our life today. We thank you for the abundance of your grace and the abundance of your mercy that you shower upon us and, and the abundance of your love that you constantly give us. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our faults. Allow us to amend our lives and to always pursue you in all things. Allow us to seek truth. Allow us to understand your holy word with wisdom and to delve into a deeper love for your sacred word, Lord. Allow us to apply it to our lives so that we may be sons and daughters of your love and that we may be advocates of that love to the rest of the world. We thank you so much for the mystery and the sacredness of this holy text. And we also, um, we ask you to deign us with the necessary gifts of understanding and knowledge to comprehend the message that you so earnestly desire to give us through this sacred scripture. Allow us to always remain faithful to your word and faithful to all that you desire for us, Lord. Allow us to submit ourselves to the holy will of your precious heart and to wrap ourselves peacefully and safely in the mantle of Mary, our mother, as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thanks for joining me for another episode here on the Promethean Perspective. It was so wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for listening. And also, if you are interested in hitting me up with some feedback, questions, prayer requests, uh, you may do so at mothermary15 at iCloud.com. And I would be very glad to feature some of that on a future show, address some uh, feedback, some questions. And also just pray for you as you continue your walk towards eternity. Um, but that's all for today's episode. I hope that you stay dry if you have a lot of rain like we do right now. And um, yeah, remember to drink some water because uh, what is good? God is good. God bless. Yeah.